One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The democracy in Taiwan is very interesting because it's still very young. It's been around for just under one generation, this idea that you could have these direct elections. Like my parents' generation, for instance, all grew up under martial law. I'm David Knowles, and this is a bonus episode of Battle Lines. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. I just find bombs and I find dead people and like maybe one day I'll end up like them but it's a really scary thing for me. <laughs> this past weekend, Taiwan went to the polls to elect a new president and members of the legislature. The nation which the Chinese Communist Party claims as its own territory, represents one of the world's most dangerous flashpoints, with the potential to ignite a global war. The general election is therefore one of the most consequential of the 70-plus polls being held around the world this year, determining how the island of 23.5 million people will manage its ties with China over the next four years. To understand the results of the Taiwanese election and what it means for the region, I spoke to Asia correspondent Nicola Smith and senior foreign correspondent Sophia Yan. Here's our conversation. Nicola, would you tell us about the results? Who won and what does this mean? Sure. Well, at the weekend, Taiwan held its presidential and its parliamentary elections. And looking at the presidential election first, the top line is that Lai Ching-te from the ruling Democratic Progressive Party won. And that gave the DPP an unprecedented third turn at the presidency. And it was a close race. The polls did predict he would win, but we were waiting until the last minute for for confirmation of that. It could have gone the other way. We could have seen the KMT, the opposition KMT win also. But in the end, Mr. Lai won 40% of the vote. And he and his party are staunch defenders of Taiwan's de facto sovereignty and its unique identity. And Beijing had actually warned voters not to choose Mr. Lai. It said that a vote for uh, Lai Qingde would raise the risk of a conflict across the Taiwan Strait. China framed the election as the choice between peace and war. But the Taiwanese voters, many of them ignored that and gave him a comfortable victory against Hao Yui, who was his main rival from the opposition Kuomintang or KMT party, and he got 
33% of the vote. And he'd been standing on a platform to boost Taiwan's defence or, or deterrence through building up its defence forces and also restarting dialogue with China and also looking for more trade with China. And then there was a third candidate, Ko wen from the new Taiwan People's Party, he got 26% of the vote, which was actually a lot for a newcomer. And we can come on to that later, but that was largely through disillusioned younger voters who were fed up with the two main parties and, and rejected their ideologies. And so broadly speaking, there were a lot of domestic issues at play, but the vote was really a, a snub of Beijing, a blow to Beijing and a rejection of its threats and also an endorsement of the outgoing President Tsang Wen of her policies during her eight years in office. She's really raised Taiwan's profile. She's also pushed through some social reforms like legalising same-sex marriage. And so it, it seems that voters were putting their trust in Lai Qingdu to continue her policies and also as the best person to protect Taiwan's democracy and its its way of life, its freedoms and everything that makes it unique from, from China. And another important point in this election was looking at the parliamentary elections. I, I'm going to steal the snap analysis from a very good analysis in Taiwan, Nathan Bato, who said there were no big winners and no big losers in the election because all three parties got something, but they didn't get everything they wanted. So the DPP lost its majority in the parliament. It got 51 seats compared to the KMT's 52. The TPP got eight votes, which will make it a kingmaker in, in many issues. And this is going to make it much harder for Lighting to, to push through some of his policies. But that's also a reflection of Taiwan's democracy. The democracy is messy. And, you know, the, the parties are going to have to cooperate with each other to push things through. A, a snub to Beijing, a blow to Beijing what, is what you said, Nicola. Um, Sophia Yan, can I ask you to comment on that? This is the first time since 2000, the election in the year 2000, that the candidate who won had less than 50% of the vote. So you can see, you know, 40% for the guy who won for Lai, 33% for the second runner-up, and then the third, 26.5%, right? So these are these are not that far when you're thinking about how this was split. And it's not a very clear majority. It's really interesting that this younger independent party that Nikki was talking about, the Taiwan People's Party, was able to win as much of the vote as they did. And also, this is the first time that a political party in Taiwan has won more than two times in a row, two consecutive presidential elections, since Taiwan moved from a military dictatorship to the beginnings of democracy to what it is today. So this itself, I think, is really very significant. The candidate who won, Lai, with this party, the DPP, they are in some ways now starting to be seen as part of the establishment. This is really interesting because the establishment before would have been the Kuomintang. They're the ones who have the candidate who came in second place. They are still part of the establishment, but it's really interesting because the DPP, which used to be perceived as sort of the more newer and hipper political party with more ideas and colorful ideas and newer innovative policy. I mean, now they've been in power for eight years. They're going to be in power for another four years. So this is a big change, I would say, overall for Taiwan. Now for China, how China has responded, Beijing is clinging so hard to the one China narrative. There have been a couple of statements out, nothing too fiery just yet. But you can see that it's like 
they're really trying. They're really trying to. I mean, this was a democratic election. People went out and voted for who they wanted in power to be the leader of their country. And China's like, Taiwan is part of China. You know, like these statements are just almost comical. So I'm going to read some of these statements for you. So here's one from the political office in the Chinese government that manages Taiwan or quote, unquote, manages Taiwan. It's called the Taiwan Affairs Office. So, quote, the results of the two elections in the Taiwan region show that the Democratic Progressive Party or DPP does not represent the mainstream public opinion on the island. Taiwan is China's Taiwan. These election results do not change the basic pattern and development direction of cross-strait relations, do not change the common desire of compatriots on both sides of the strait to become closer and more intimate, and certainly cannot stop the grand trend of the motherland's eventual and inevitable unification. So you have to think about this language, which is very interesting, right? They call it the Taiwan region, not a country or an island necessarily, right? I'm trying to make it very clear that Taiwan's part of China. They say it clearly, quote, Taiwan is China's Taiwan. And they kind of gloss over the fact that there were democratic elections. All of this is what you would expect China to do and to say. But it is always almost kind of amusing. I mean, they try so hard to say that this is part of their country. I mean, even in COVID, I always use this example to show how much they try. So during the pandemic in China, there were apps, mobile apps, where you could look up the number of cases in different parts of the country, which ones might be more high risk, et cetera. And on the app, you could look up by province, but there was also a selection for Taiwan province. But if you went into Taiwan province, there was no data. It was just so funny, you know, like in the sense that they're trying so hard to give this image that it is one country. But of course it isn't. Debatable, again, who you ask if it's one or two countries. But the fact that there was an exercise in democracy in Taiwan is something that China really does not want to acknowledge at all. Nikki, you were on the streets reporting on the election. Did the issue of China come up a lot with the people you spoke to? What was the atmosphere? It, it did because I, I was asking the people I spoke to about <laughs> helps, China, yeah. <laughs> but it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily the first thing on people's minds. You know, when I opened with uh, the question of, what's the most important issue for you? What are you voting on principally? A lot of people said the economy. Younger people especially said housing, jobs, low wages. They wanted change. Other people were talking about things as mundane as as traffic issues. But there's certainly China and the relationship between Taiwan and China certainly loomed in the background. So people were very aware that that this was a major factor in the election and many people were voting on, on that issue. And so Taiwan has a very raucous, exuberant election campaign. They have mass rallies. Each of the parties hold these huge gatherings in sometimes stadiums, sometimes on the street in front of the the presidential office. And you've got hundreds of thousands of supporters who are coming along. You've got families, you've got young people, old people, people bringing their pets. We saw pet dogs and pet cats dressed in the political party colours. So it's a very jovial, kind of raucous atmosphere. And just going to speak to people at those rallies, there, there were very different vibes. So with the, the KMT, 
rally the night before the election that was a, a slightly older crowd, more elderly and also middle-aged people. And the people that we spoke to there did speak a lot more about China. They spoke about their fears that the DPP was being too aggressive with China and that it could lead to conflict or, or, or greater tensions with China. And that's certainly the message that Hao Yui, the presidential candidate for the KMT, was putting across. And so people at those rallies were saying, we're worried, we're worried about war. We don't want war with China. At the DPP rally, generally speaking, people spoke more about a sense of identity, about wanting to preserve Taiwan's freedoms, its democracy. They were looking at Hong Kong and, and saying, we just don't want what happened to Hong Kong. We cherish our right to vote and, and to speak our minds, and we don't want to be oppressed in the same way that Hong Kong has been. And then for the third party, I mean, there were vast numbers coming out to support Ko Wanjia, who was a former uh, popular mayor of, of Taipei. And many of these people were young. He did take up a, a large proportion of, of the youth vote. And they were saying that they just wanted to get rid of the old parties, that they wanted someone new and, and a bit more radical and a bit more in touch with the issues that they were worried about, which you know were the, the bread and butter issues of, of housing and, and jobs. But I would say that everyone I spoke to, they all wanted to keep their way of life. They saw different ways of, of doing that. And they saw different candidates have, as having the potential to do it better, to manage the relationship with China in the right way. But the overarching theme was that they wanted to remain Taiwanese. They did not want unification with China, that they rejected China's threats against Taiwan. And that's also reflected in surveys that have been done in recent years, which show that at least 90% of, of Taiwanese citizens identify as Taiwanese, and only a very tiny, tiny, tiny minority would be in favour of unification with China. And, and that's really where Taiwan is now. And that, that was reflected in, in what voters were saying. There was a lot of interest in this particular election because of the rising threat of China. But I think it's very important to be clear as Nikki said, that the majority of people have no interest in being a part of China. So the difference in the candidates winning is not necessarily that one or the other would be happy to like sell sell Taiwan out or whatnot. But what's different is the policy by which they attempt to pursue deterrence. And there's a big debate as to how to do that. Is it more or less of a risk to, for instance, be closer to the U.S.? The more Taiwan is close to the U.S., the more China gets upset, but also at the same time, the more Taiwan is close to the U.S. and gets, for instance, weapon support. That could also be something that China takes note and, and thinks, okay, maybe we're not going to move on Taiwan. So this is a big debate, right? Because you don't really know whether what you're doing is having the intended impact uh, it's hard to be in the mind of Chinese leader Xi Jinping. And so I think this is the big debate that Taiwan needs to grapple with. Uh, in advance of this election, there were a lot of complaints about the party that was in power, the DPP, which has again won the seat for president. And the complaints were that they were giving too much of a swagger, that they were a little bit too loud or a little bit too much in the spotlight, and that that was inviting the kind of tensions that were getting much more heated with China. Because over the last few years, you've seen a lot more Chinese flyovers Taiwan, a lot of kind of 
psychological warfare in that sense, just kind of showing their military might from the Chinese side. And of course, Taiwan then has to respond. So there's a lot of debate as to what would be effective. Now, the U.S. has been pretty vocal in its support of Taiwan. Senior delegation from the U.S. did meet with Lai and the soon outgoing president Tsai Ing-wen. And of course, China was upset about that, right? They they see that as a, an absolute affront to their policy, which is that there's only one country. But it really is hard to say whether it is more of a deterrent move or if it's going to upset China more. I guess the big question now for both of you really is what happens now? When does the new president get inaugurated? Um, to, to what extent do you think, Nikki, that the, the kind of talk and bluster maybe that we saw during, during the election, does that calm down now? Uh, you know, how, how much of this is just sort of pre-game talk? I think it's really hard to say. I, I, I don't want to say anything premature, really, because no one can quite predict what China is going to do. But there's a general consensus that it's not going to do anything dramatic for now. And since the election, we've seen kind of usual angry statements from China. We haven't seen um, any major military action or anything beyond rhetoric. But I wouldn't dismiss the the pre-election rhetoric either. I mean, China has made it very clear that it, it believes that Taiwan is Chinese and that it is going to take over the island, whether that's peacefully or whether it's militarily. That's its stated intention and and that's not changed. So there is still a very real threat against Taiwan and its way of life. But what we don't know really is the timescale and the manner by which China will make its move. I mean, it could be years from now. We just don't know. And nobody's expecting an imminent invasion of Taiwan. But in recent years, China has really stepped up its military and economic pressure on the island. It's been flying its fighter jets very close to Taiwanese airspace. It's been sending its naval ships close to Taiwanese waters. And it's also been exerting economic coercive measures against Taiwanese businesses and choosing things like pineapples, you know, fruits or other vulnerable businesses just to try and undermine the government and try to psychologically pressure the Taiwanese People. And it seems that China will probably keep adding to those pressures and those measures it's been using. We'll see more of the same. We'll see more economic sanctions, more disinformation strategies. And that is something that is going to make Lai Qingde's rule difficult. China has also said that it, it doesn't want to talk to the DPP for eight years under President Tsai. It completely cut off official talks with Taiwan, and that is set to continue. Many analysts are saying that China is unlikely to do anything too dramatic before the inauguration, which will be in May. And so really, we just have to wait and see what kind of strategy China chooses to deploy. On Monday, a couple of days after the election, one of Taiwan's diplomatic allies switched sides. So Taiwan only now has 12 official diplomatic allies and the tiny Pacific state of Nauru said that it was switching its allegiance to Beijing and that appears to have come under pressure or actually more incentives for for Beijing. Taiwanese officials said that it was lured by the promise of funding. And so that is another tactic that, that China uses just to try and isolate Taiwan in the international stage. And I think that's that's set to continue. 
One thing that I think is important to understand is why we're still in this position today. This is like a bit of history that never fully got resolved, and then Taiwan just moved in a different direction. The vast Chinese empire used to be ruled uh, by dynasties, emperors, and when that was dismantled and fell, there was, of course, a period of political strife, new governments in place, and then there was really bloody civil war. So there was a nationalist government put in place. A lot of people think of a man named Sun Yat-sen as the father of modern China, he was really influential after the last dynasty fell, the Qing dynasty. It was back in 1911. We fast forward a couple of decades. It's, it's complicated history. Suffice it to say, it was very confusing, very complicated. Lots of people wanted to be in power. Civil war breaks out. Mao Zedong and his communist rebels, they win. The losing party, which had been in power, that was the Kuomintang. And so they retreated to the island of Taiwan, which is very small. It's on the east coast of China. And it's close enough that you could swim there. I mean, it's still a bit of a long swim, but people have been known to do it. For a very long time after the communists took power in China and they established the People's Republic of China in 1949, they said, we are the sole legitimate government of China, which includes all of this stuff plus Taiwan. In Taiwan, the Kuomintang government established the Republic of China, ROC, and they said, we are the sole legitimate government in charge of all of China, and all of this is ours. So this was like this civil war that never really got resolved. I mean, there was a winner in the sense that one guy got a lot more land than the other guy, but on both sides, they never actually stopped fighting each other. But what changed in Taiwan was that over time, the government morphed from this military dictatorship, this really brutal martial law into a fledgling baby democracy. And this happened through the 80s, the 90s. Taiwan had its first presidential election in 1996. So actually, the democracy in Taiwan is very interesting because it's still very young. It's been around for just under one generation, this idea that you could have these direct elections to have some say into who would be your leader. Like my parents' generation, for instance, all grew up under martial law. And my parents left Taiwan for the U.S. because of this government that was to them, not the most equitable and most fair. They didn't see so much in terms of future prospects for their kids, for me. <laughs> so I think this is all very interesting to remember, to think about the context of where Taiwan is coming from. And so Taiwan has moved on, basically. They have totally moved on. There are many generations now into developing their own identity, their own culture, forging this new path, whereas the Chinese government is still in some respects, stuck in time. They're still clinging onto this idea that all of this land was theirs, all of this is technically belongs to them, and they won't let that go. And for Chinese President Xi Jinping, this is like a really great talking point, right, to rile up nationalist patriotic sentiments to say, well, you know, look at how much land we have and how great the Chinese empire really is. And so it's something that he won't let go. To a certain extent, if war really were to break out, there is a chance, perhaps a small chance, but there is a, a chance that the Chinese propaganda will work against them because most Chinese people already think and believe that Taiwan is part of China. So there's probably going to be a lot of questions as to why they're going to war if war were to happen. So all of this is, I think, an interesting backdrop to look at what's happening today. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Sophie. Let's start to wrap things up then. Is there anything we haven't spoken about that you think is interesting or important for our listeners to understand? And I'm quite keen because we will try and go around the world and pick up these spots of tensions, of conflicts and so on. If our attention starts to move away, what should we remember? 
I think it's impossible for our attention to move away, really, because Taiwan is such a, a strategic and important country in its own right. It dominates the semiconductor industry supply chain. And as we know, semiconductor chips are crucial for so many household goods and artificial intelligence and for so many applications. It's also in a very strategic location in the so-called First Island chain that runs from Russia down to the Malay Peninsula. And so if it was able to be annexed, then it would give China Pacific coastline, which would be much more of a challenge to the United States into Pacific policy and also its allies. But I think it's also important to to recognize that Taiwan has had a lot of support over the past few days. There have been, you know, we've already mentioned the United States offering support and sending an unofficial delegation, but still a, a very visible one. Uh, the UK, David Cameron, Foreign Secretary, he congratulated Lai Ching-duan and also Taiwan's democracy, as did other democracies such as Australia or, or Japan. China wasn't very happy about that, but there is a lot of international support there for Taipei, for the new government, and also a lot of interest in preserving Taiwan's democracy and also just forging better relations with Taiwan, whether they be political or trade relations. Another important endorsement that came out yesterday was from the Philippines president, Marcos. He congratulated William Lai and he said that he looked forward to close collaboration. And and that was quite a significant statement because the the Philippines is also um, experiencing a lot of pressure from China over territories in the South China Sea that uh, both claim as their own And the Philippines has really been standing up to China and China's coercive tactics. And I think that really shows that people are starting to get very tired of of China's bullying tactics and that democracies are starting to stick together a bit more and and show a bit more cooperation and a coordinated approach in trying to handle that. That's a very optimistic note to end on. Sophia, would you like to add anything? Um, Are you equally as optimistic? I've got two points that I want to make. One is about China and its mode of operating, its its MO, modus operandi. It's it, China, it's all about slow creep, you know, the slow rise of China, the slow burn. It doesn't go for the kind of shock and awe you would expect from perhaps Russia or Iran, you know, Russia invading Ukraine. Like this is very clear. China takes a very different approach. If you look at what happened to Hong Kong, that was something that happened over many years. Of course, Hong Kong is very different than Taiwan. A lot of people don't think what had happened in Hong Kong could happen in Taiwan. And and in Hong Kong, it was definitely mission slow creep. Uh, And now there's no question about it as to who's in power and what is going on in Hong Kong. It's very clear that Hong Kong is really in the way of, of mainland China, that the freedoms are really shrinking. If any freedoms are left, this is debatable. This is arguable. And many people who used to be able to speak freely are now in jail. It is not always so immediate what China is doing. It's not always so clear and it doesn't always rise to the forefront. But that threat is always there. And other countries in the region, as Nikki said, the Philippines, they're concerned. But even other countries that are bigger and stronger, like South Korea or Japan. For instance, Japan is a pretty strong military. There's allies of the U.S., they are concerned too about the rise of China. What does it mean to have a country of this size and of such influence right next door? 
if they're going to move on Taiwan, or even if they're thinking about moving on Taiwan, could they also move on South Korea or Japan? I mean, these are very legitimate questions that those governments are thinking about too. And so it's really important not to lose sight of this overarching threat because it kind of ebbs and flows. Sometimes that threat seems a lot more clear and obvious and other times it isn't, but it is always there. And that's the way China operates. They are thinking on a longer timeline than anybody else. They might say they want to do this one thing today. And if it takes them 100 years, then so be it. It takes them 100 years. They've got a lot more patience and ability to withstand pain than I think many other nations and governments realize and are willing to admit. So that's one thing. The other is that I would really encourage your audience to read about Taiwan democracy. You know, we see this phrase in the news all the time, but it's so interesting how Taiwan is growing as a democracy. It legalized same-sex marriage in 2019 after quite a bit of a social movement. There are still other issues that are being hashed out in society. There are lots of organizations working on things like wrongful conviction. I mean, this is the beauty of democracy. These are the kinds of things that can happen in a place that allows for freedom of speech, for the questioning of government, for accountability. And this is so important to understand because democracy is a living, breathing concept and idea, right? This is something that Taiwan is learning and in some ways still experimenting with because it's such a young democracy. And I think that is what's so special about Taiwan, that it is growing uh, in this way, literally as we speak. Battle Lines is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our news, analysis and dispatches from the ground in Israel and Gaza, subscribe to The Telegraph or sign up to Dispatches, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from contributors to this podcast. If you appreciated the podcast, please consider following Battle Lines on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. As disinformation is a particular problem during conflict, we are relying on your support more than ever. Battle Lines is part of wider Telegraph foreign coverage in our podcasts. If you're interested in finding out more about the war in Ukraine, you can listen to Battle Lines' sister podcast, Ukraine the Latest. This episode of Battle Lines was produced by me, David Knowles, and executive producer, Louisa Wells.